Why is it that we spend so much money, billions and billions and billions of dollars to figure out who we want to vote for for president or to get our person to be elected as president? Why is it that there are all these fundraisers, all these rallies, all of these debates? It's because we want to choose the right leader, right? It's because we know that the leader that we choose has a significant influence over our life and over our country. It affects our economy. It affects our morality as a nation. It affects everything in our life to one degree or another, maybe great or small. But it has a tremendous influence on our life, on our country and on our world. And so who we choose to be our leader is extremely important. The nation of Israel didn't have presidents, but they did have kings. And it's actually a very interesting story, the story of the kings of Israel. You see, God had brought his people out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. And he had set up judges to govern, but the Lord was the king. The Lord was the king of the nation of Israel. That was his desire, that he would run it, that he would govern it, that they would serve him and that they would worship him. But the people weren't content with that. And they come to Samuel, the prophet, and they say this to Samuel. They say, Israel said to Samuel, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us. And then this is important. Such as all the other nations. You see, this was their major error. They didn't want the Lord to be their king. They wanted a king like all the other nations. One that was tangible. One that they could see. One that they could hear clearly, frequently. They wanted a king like all the other nations. And it goes on. But when he said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And so you see the people reject the Lord as their king and they choose to put in place a human king like the nations. That's their desire. And so God gives them a king like the nations. They give him, he, the Lord gives them Saul, who is tall, who is handsome, but who's also corrupt like the kings of the nations. He's wicked. He's devious. He's selfish. And then the kingship passes on to David, who was a good king. And then it passes on to Solomon, who, you know, had his good times and bad times. And so there was this united kingdom for 120 years, this united kingdom of Israel. But then it divided because the king in the north said, you know what? I'm going to set up my own temple, have my own priests, found our own country. And so the, the nation actually divided. And we have a map up here of it. You see what's, what's interesting. So this whole area was the nation of Israel. Okay? All combined. But when they divided, it split. And the northern kingdom became known as Israel. And the southern kingdom became known as Judah. And both of these have a very interesting history going forward in terms of their kings. Israel, who split off so that they could pursue idolatry, continued a plummet in which they ran away from the Lord. And the Lord and his grace came to Israel through his prophets and said, repent and return to me as the true God. But they wouldn't. And so the Lord brings his judgment upon them with the Assyrian Empire and spreads them out over the Middle East. The southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, did better. <laughs> it lasted a little bit longer. 
There were some good kings, some bad kings, but eventually it took a nosedive. And again, the Lord sent prophets saying, return to me or else I will bring judgment upon you. And he brought judgment upon them through the Babylonian Empire. And they are scattered throughout the Middle East. And so that's what these nations were headed towards. This is why they were exiled. And you'll see, uh, today we're going to be looking at the book of Zechariah. And in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah was in the southern kingdom. He was in Judah. And what Babylon did is when they came in, they said, we're going to take the leaders of Jerusalem and we're going to send them throughout the empire. And one of those leaders was Ezekiel. He was a priest. And so Ezekiel was deported over here to Babylon. And while he's in Babylon, during a dark part of the history of Israel, maybe the lowest point in Israel's history, the the Lord speaks through Ezekiel this prophecy, this prophecy of judgment, but also of hope. It's a Christmas passage for us in preparing for Christmas. And so we're going to read Ezekiel 34. We're going to read it in parts today. And so let me just open us in prayer and then we'll dig in. Gracious God, thank you for Christmas. Thank you that the long-awaited Savior has come in Jesus Christ, Lord. God, we stand on this side of his birth, this side of his cross, and many times we, don't, we aren't as amazed with it as we should be, God. But for the people of the Old Testament, Lord, this was something they had been longing for their whole lives, God. We praise you that you fulfill your promise to bring a Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to delight in that this day. In Christ's name, amen. So this, this story of Ezekiel is broken down kind of in, in parts in Ezekiel 34. And so we're going to read through it together. Uh, it's printed in your bulletin. I'm going to be re- reading from the NIV today. And so you can follow along with me. First, we see God describing the wickedness of the shepherds. We've already talked about it in part, but we get more detail of how wicked the shepherd kings were in Israel. Look with me if you would in 34.1. says, The word of the Lord came to me, that's Ezekiel. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals. But you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. The shepherds of Israel were oppressive. They were selfish people. They ate the best food while people in their own kingdom was going hungry. They clothed themselves in the nicest clothes while people were freezing and naked in their own kingdom. They had people running away, and they did not search them out to love them and to bring them back. They let them go. You know, I think even in our own culture, we tend to neglect 
the people that we see as burdens in our culture, people that we would say, you know what, these people don't have it together. They're not worth it. They're a burden to our church, to our country. We should neglect them. We should just ignore them and say, work harder. And God talks to the shepherds and says, this is wicked. You see, even in this rebuke, God has given us a picture of what a good leader looks like, what a good shepherd looks like. It is a servant leader, one who has the power or one who is placed in power to care for his sheep, not so that his sheep could serve them. But it's also a compassionate leader, one who cares for those who are marginalized by society. When I was in college, I worked at this Christian sports camp called Canacuck for two summers. And I remember when I showed up and I saw this this older man, 55 or so, and he had this raggedy old T-shirt on and these raggedy jeans. And I can't remember what he was doing. He's either mopping a floor or he was digging a ditch or something. And I thought, oh, look, there's the grounds crew, right? <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Well, as I got to know this man, I found out that he actually ran this camp for thousands and thousands and thousands of kids every summer. And I, I wondered, I, what's the deal? And you see, he lived by this motto and as a leadership principle. His leadership principle was, I'm third. The Lord's first, others second, I'm third. The Lord's agenda first, others agenda second, mine third. The Lord's desires first, Others desire second, mine third. And so he lived out this servant, compassionate leadership that I would never forget. This is the leadership that God calls us into. You see, almost all of you are in a place of leadership, whether it be in your workplace as a boss or maybe even in your home as a mom or a dad. You are called to be leaders. And the type of leader that God calls us to be is one that is compassionate, one that is a servant to others. And so God calls us to be not like these Israelite shepherds, but to be a a good leader that is compassionate, that serves. Now, the kings of Israel were nothing like this. They were selfish. They were uncompassionate. And the Lord loved his people. And so he speaks judgment against the shepherds. Look in verse 7 with me. It says, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my flock, uh, excuse me, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. The Lord tells us that he holds leaders and shepherds accountable for the way that they lead and the way that they shepherd. Now for us, this is both comforting But it's also a warning. It's comforting in knowing that those who lead us, those who are over us, will have to stand account before the Lord one day on how they have led us. But it's also a warning. Because as I said, many of us are leaders. And God will hold us to account on how we lead our families, on how we lead the church, on how we lead in our business. 
And so God calls us to be these serving, compassionate leaders that look like Jesus. So that's the first part of the story. It goes on. Actually, right in the middle there, it talks about how the Lord's sheep are scattered. Look in verse 5 with me. It says, So they were scattered because they were, there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wander over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched for them or looked for them. As a result of the shepherd's selfishness, their idolatry, the sheep flee because they can't be taken care of in Israel. More than that, the Lord brings judgment upon the kings and then they are displaced through the exile from, throughout the Babylonian Empire. And so they're spread throughout the world. Pray, vulnerable. You know, I think we know what this is like, don't we? If we move to a new city or we come to a new church or we started a new business... We feel vulnerable. We feel like nobody knows us. No one is there to bind together with us. These people of God, these lambs of God, these sheep of God, they were dispersed and they were vulnerable. They were scattered. And then we see what the Lord does. As I read this, notice how many times the Lord says, I will do this. Okay, Verse 11. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his flock, when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of cloud and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. I will pastor them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture. And the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land. And there they will feed in rich pasture on the mountain of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and strong, I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. See the Lord's heart. That he seeks out his sheep and he seeks them out so that he can rescue them. And so that he can care for them. You see this rescuing phrase repeated over and over again in this passage. He says, I myself will search for my sheep. He says, I will rescue them. I will bring them out from the nations. I will bring them into their own land. I will search for the lost and bring them the strays. The Lord seeks out his sheep and he brings them back to care for them, to nourish them. In this passage, he says, I look after my sheep. I will pasture them on the mountain of Israel. I will tend them in a good pasture. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. You know, as we mentioned, the Assyrian and Babylonian empire come into Israel. And they demolish it, Israel and Judah. And they scatter the sheep of God throughout the world. And into this scattering, Ezekiel writes this prophecy. He writes this promise. 
that the Lord will pursue them, that the Lord will bring them back, that the Lord will care for them. What an amazing ray of hope it must have been for the worst time in Israel's history, that the Lord will not cease to pursue his sheep. This is such good news for us, isn't it? That God does not stop searching and rescuing and caring for his wayward sheep. This is what God does for us. You know, it's amazing because the book of Ezra and Nehemiah actually chronicle how God fulfills this promise. You see, both in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, what's amazing is that not only does the Lord let them come back to rebuild Jerusalem, but he actually, the kings of those places actually fund the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the wall so that the Lord can bring his people back to Jerusalem and back to Israel. And so the Lord searches out his sheep. I love the story in the New Testament. Jesus is uh, traveling as part of his ministry. And there are some tax collectors and, quote, sinners that gather around him. And the Pharisees, the religious people, are sitting there thinking, Jesus, what are you doing with these people? You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be hanging out with them, right? Or if you are, why don't you rebuke them? Tell them, quit cheating people, quit fornicating, get right, come on, do the right thing. But Jesus doesn't say anything like that at all to these tax collectors and these sinners. Instead, he tells this story, probably a story that you are somewhat familiar with. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after that lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. I'm not sure what kind of sheep you are this morning. (laughs) All of you are sheep following a shepherd. I don't know what shepherd you follow either. Maybe you are a scattered sheep running away into foreign lands. God gives this promise that he will pursue you to the far country. Maybe you are a malnourished sheep, a hungry sheep. God promises to feed you through his word. Maybe you are a tired sheep. God promises to make you lie down in green pastures. Maybe you are an injured sheep. God promises to bind you up, to heal you by wrapping you in himself. Maybe you are a weak sheep. God promises to strengthen you. You know, there is this common belief that everybody's looking for God, right? Like like we're playing hide and seek. Um, you know, we're looking for God and God's elusive and he's hiding in the closet or something. And we're searching for him and searching for him. But it's so hard to find God. You know, it, it might be true that we're searching for a God. But biblically speaking, we do not search for the Lord God. We don't. All of us run away from God because of our sin, because of our shame. You see this in the garden with Adam and Eve. They sin against God. They clothe themselves and they run away. And what does God do? God seeks them. You remember, he comes into the garden and he says, where are you? Romans chapter 3 says this in a very direct form. It says, there is no one who seeks God. In the Greek, it means there is no one who seeks God. (laughs) 
All have turned away. You see, the good news of God is not that we have sought God, but that God has sought us in the form of a baby named Jesus. And he has come to pursue us and he pursues his sheep to the uttermost ends of the earth. That is the good news of Jesus Christ for us. Not that we have pursued him, but that he has pursued us in our rebellion, in our wandering, to love us and to bring him, bring us to him, to rescue us and to care for us. But there's more. The Lord seeks his sheep to save them. Look in verse 22. He says, I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. How will God do this? How will God save his sheep? How will he judge between one and another? Verse 23. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, has spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them. And so here it is. The sheep of God are scattered throughout the world. And Ezekiel writes this amazing promise to them that the Lord will seek them, that the Lord will rescue them, but that the Lord will save them. The Lord has this amazing rescue plan. And the people are hearing this from Ezekiel, awaiting for this promised rescue. And how does the Lord say he will save his people? He will send a shepherd, a good shepherd, after the line of David, a prince of peace. Who is this prince of peace? Who is this great shepherd? Well, just after Jesus is born, Herod's men tell him this prophecy from the Old Testament. I believe it's from Micah. And it says this, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Jesus is the great Davidic prince, shepherd, savior that Israel had been longing for for hundreds and thousands of years. And he had finally arrived at Christmas, you see him go on to explain that he is the good shepherd that is prophesied about. Matthew 9, 36 says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, as the shepherds in the Old Testament were supposed to, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. John ten fourteen, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. You know, Christmas is a time of celebrating that the good shepherd has come. You know, Israel had waited for this good shepherd to come for hundreds and thousands of years. Now, how would you expect them to respond? How would you expect Israel to respond when their good shepherd that they'd been longing for, who was going to rescue them and save them, how would you expect them to respond? You expect them to worship him, maybe, to certainly serve him, to praise him, to follow him. And they did that at times, but they also spit on him. They rejected him. They mocked him. And they killed him on a cross. That's how they treated their good shepherd. But you see, it was all part of the good shepherd's plan. 
In John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Do you know how the shepherd saved the sheep? The good shepherd saved his sheep by becoming a lamb. The good shepherd saves his sheep by becoming a lamb for us, a sacrificial lamb, a lamb who is sacrificed for your sin and for mine, that we could be part of the fold of God. First Peter 1 talks about this. It says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The good shepherd saved us, he redeemed us, he rescued us, and he cares for us by becoming a lamb and purchasing you and me at the cross by paying for our sin as a great lamb sacrificed for us. Now, why would he do this? Why would he possibly demonstrate his love and laying down his life for you and for me? Well, I think the end of Ezekiel gives us a hint to that. Look at Ezekiel verse 30 with me. It says, when they, when they will, then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the sovereign Lord. You, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, are people, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. Jesus became the sacrificial lamb, that we would know the Lord is our God, that he is our great rescuer, our great hope, our great savior. He did that for us. You know, this this time of the year, a common question floats around the house. And if you have young kids, I'm sure this question comes up multiple times a day like it does for me. And the question is, when is Christmas, right? When is Christmas? When is Christmas, right? We hear that several times a day. When is Christmas? Right? We even have this little chalkboard as you walk into our sunroom about this big. And it says blank days till Christmas. And then with chalk, you fill in how many days left till Christmas. Right? And the kids are so eager for Christmas. And they're awaiting it. And they're anticipating I remember even as a kid, you know, like December 1st. It's like, all right, Christmas is almost here. Right? Yes. And then it gets to December 24th. And I'm like shaking because I'm so excited for Christmas. Right? I got to go play basketball or something. Just get the energy out. Right? And then Christmas Day comes, and it is a glorious celebration. You know, let me propose this. The Old Testament is like Christmas Eve. The New Testament is Christmas Day. The Savior has come. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, talk about what it's like to live life without this great shepherd king. And he said, a life like that is always winter, but never Christmas. It's always winter, but never Christmas. Maybe you, maybe this would describe your spiritual soul. It has always been winter. You have never known the joy of the Savior. You have never known the Christ of Christmas. I pray that as we anticipate celebrating the birth of Jesus, that this year would be the year that you would know the good shepherd who seeks the scattered, binds the injured, feeds the hungry, strengthens the weak, and saves the damned. This is the good shepherd, the Christ of Christmas, that we will celebrate 
Not just next week, but all year long. Let's pray. God, we thank you that Christmas has arrived. That Christ has arrived, God. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here in which their life is winter and they've never been able to celebrate Christmas in the, in the way of knowing Jesus Christ as their Savior, I pray today that they would trust in Christ and they would have a Christmas experience this year that they could never imagine, knowing the joy that you have sent a shepherd, Savior, for our souls. That you have sought us out like the hound of heaven to draw us to yourselves. And you did this in the form of a baby. What a glorious gift this is, Lord God. Greater than anything we could possibly exchange, Lord. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for this gift. In his name we pray. Amen. Be six. We read this account of the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine. Till that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The bread, the wine, or the juice represent Christ's body and blood. They're ordinary things, ordinary food. Some of you may well have had toast and grape juice even this morning. But these elements are set apart for a special use this morning as they do represent Christ's body and blood. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It was at the time of the institution of the Lord's Supper that Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. And that was a celebration of the Passover. As Dan said a few moments ago, Jesus Christ is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. But he also is the shepherd who has become a sheep. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Was he thinking of the Passover lamb? Quite possibly. As we come this morning to partake of this sacrament, we remember that we are in need of a shepherd and of a savior and we've had one of us, Jesus Christ die in our place to atone for our sins we are sheep and Christ became a sheep in order to die for us that's another way of speaking of the incarnation that God became flesh and dwelt among us we beheld his glory and he offered his life for our forgiveness. As we distribute the elements, please hold the bread and then the cup that we may all partake at the same time. 
If you hear these things this morning and you're not sure that you trust Christ as your Savior or you don't understand the things that we're talking about, just pass the tray on to the next person because the Bible does speak of judgment that comes upon those who partake of this sacrament and are not worthy to partake of it. On the other hand, if you say, well, I'm a sinner. I trust Christ, but I'm still a sinner. The passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul says Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed is in the middle of a, the context is speaking about sexual immorality and saying that as believers, we need to live lives which are apart from sin, holy lives, good lives. Confess your sin, ask for God's forgiveness. But if you are a sinner and you trust Christ, then this sacrifice is definitely for you. We ask those who are serving to please come forward.